Okay, so hi everyone and welcome back to another edition of the Sport in History podcast. My name is Connor Heffernan and I'm very excited to be joined today by Andy Carter. Andy is a PhD student at Manchester Metropolitan University and today we're going to be talking about his wonderful article At Home at Oxbridge, British Views of Ancient Greek Sport, 1749 to 1974, which is published in Sport in History. So to begin, I'm going to thank Andy again for indulging my request to come on the podcast and ask him just to introduce himself and say a few words about your broader PhD project. Hi, Connor. Um, well, as Connor said, my name is Andy Carter. I'm a PhD student at Manchester Met. Um, my PhD title is The Use and Abuse of Ancient History in Victorian Sport. Um, it's actually gone a little bit longer than, than that in terms of period in that I guess I'm really talking about the long 19th century because certainly uh, it it has its roots a little bit earlier in the 19th century than the Victorians and a lot of the impact of what I talk about actually goes over that period past the revival of the modern Olympics and into the first decade of the 20th century. Basically I'm talking about the way in which um, ancient history acted as both an inspiration and a warning to the Victorian and Edwardian sportsmen. And, uh, and this will probably be a nice segue into the article that was recently published. How, how did you come to this topic? Because it's, it's a really interesting one. And as your article shows, like it's, it's really a meaty issue that draws on so many different uh, strings from the Victorian and Edwardian period. Um, well, it was kind of a roundabout route. Um, as you might expect, because it's, it's not the kind of subject you sort of trip over. Uh, but um, I, I started out, um, I started out straight from school, uh, which as, as you can tell by looking at me, but the listeners can't, a long time ago. Um, so I went off to do a, a history and archaeology degree um, back in the late, 70s and um, in those days my interest was in um, in the dark ages particularly with relation to the Celts so I my original idea of a career path was going to be very very different historically um, but um, for one reason and another I couldn't afford to, to go on with academic study when I finished my first degree and got um, sidetracked into a career in IT for 30 odd years. And then I came back to study um, a few years ago, I, I was able to, to essentially retire a little bit early. And, and so I decided to do an MA in public history because I was interested in the way in which uh, history is used by politicians. Um, I think we, we see it now more than ever, I think. It's become a very contested space in, in the last few months in particular. But even four or five years ago, it was obvious that the past was constantly being used by um, politicians to make a point. Uh, at that time, it was a lot to do with the European referendum. But the, the, there's other aspects of British identity and so on, which, which constantly... Um, constantly are used by politicians as an excuse to sort of say, well, because of this in the past, we must do this now or whatever. So I went into public history because of an interest in that, 
Um, as part of the public history course, we, we did a module on podcasting and learning the craft of putting podcasts together. Um, and I was interested in that because I used to work for the BBC, so I knew a bit about radio production. Uh, so I ended up doing a podcast series as my um, sort of special piece for the, the end of the MA. And um, I was casting around for a, a subject to, um, to write and record about. And um, it was suggested to me by one of the lecturers that um, I might like to do something about cricket which I haven't particularly thought about. I was mad green, keen on cricket back in the mid-70s. And I, again, uh, as with many things, I got distracted by the rest of life and hadn't given cricket a lot of thought over the last few decades. Um, and so then I, I, I got decided that I've got to write something about cricket. So um, I looked around and came across this marvellous story that in 1868, the first Australian cricket tour to England was by Australian Aborigines. And I thought, well, there's a story. And um, I got into that and then realised that they, uh, the Aborigines were followed by a, tour, a touring side of Parsis who came from India as the first uh, native side from India to tour. So I thought, well, what, what about the reaction and... Um, what about the experience and, and reactions of the public to these um, teams of non-white cricketers coming from the empire in, in the mid-Victorian period? So that's what I made my podcast series on. It was about the, the earliest Black and Asian cricketers in, in Britain. Um, in the course of that, I learned a lot about Victorian sport uh, in, in, in um, researching that. And also about the, the way in which class and political control was so intimately connected with Victorian sport, perhaps in a way we don't necessarily um, think of nowadays because um, now we think of sportsmen as a, as a separate class from politicians, but in the Victorian period, certainly there were a, an awful lot of people in Parliament who'd, who'd played first-class cricket because of the way that the school and university system worked. So um, after my MA, I started thinking about sports history and the way in which um, history and, and politics combined uh, to, to impact on each other. And I started thinking about maybe looking at when that had started. And, and if you follow that back, um, you find that the the interaction of sport and politics goes back to the very earliest days of sport at all. And so certainly um, we know in the Roman Empire that politicians used putting on of big games or ludi as they called them to, to get public interest. And that's what prompted Juvenal to make his remark about bread and circuses where um, you keep the public happy by feeding them and giving them entertainment and they don't really care what you do um, that's the basis of populist politics um, but that whole Roman idea of sport had in turn developed out of Greek sport and so I went back and looked at Greek sport and there in Greek sport there was the whole interaction between the city-states 
at the ancient Olympics. And, and again, you can see parallels to the modern world in the way that city-states projected power through sport. And you had kind of the same Cold War antics that I grew up with at the Olympics in the 60s and 70s were there in the ancient Olympics in the fourth and fifth century BC as, as the likes of Athens and Sparta and Croton projected their power on each other through uh, the performative aspect of each other's athletes. Um, so I started to read up on uh, ancient sport. One of the first books I got out of the university library was um, Athletics of the Ancient World by E. Norman Gardner. And this was um, the book that I talk a lot about in, in the article. But um, also, even now, it's still considered quite an authoritative text on, on ancient Greek sport. So I thought, well, as a starting point, I'll sit down, I'll read this, and then maybe I'll be able to think of something to do with, with the history of politics and sport. Um, and I, I, I read it, and it's full of, it, of marvellous stuff. I mean, to, uh, although it may come across in the article sometimes that I'm saying Gardner was misled and mistaken in some of the attitudes he expresses, I do not at all want to detract from the scholarship of the man in terms of what he was able to find out about the ancient world and the detail of it. I think his application of it to the modern world is sometimes um, questionable, but his actual understanding and, and the breadth of research he did is impressive by any standards. Uh, but you read Gardner's narrative of, of the ancient world, and one when he's talking about these marvellous sporting contests and these great performances in the past. But every now and then he breaks off to go on a complete diatribe about sport in his own day. And it's, um, it's all about how dreadful it is that there's too much specialisation going on in sport and, and um, everyone's becoming a professional sportsman and professionals are all cheats and, and dreadful people who don't care about the spirit of the game. And also, if people start um, watching professionals and sitting and watching things, British Empire will collapse just like the Roman Empire did because um, the country will become a nation of couch potatoes in thrall to heroic sportsmen who are complete dimwits. So um, that, that intrigued me because there you're getting somebody who not just once or twice, but repeatedly throughout his works, is always bringing ancient sport back to his own day and saying, well, ancient sport can teach us these lessons. And if we don't pay heed and we allow professionalism to take over sport, then dreadful things will happen. Um, so then I thought, well, actually, let's see whether dreadful things did happen and how much how much that affected um, modern sport. And, and again, I suppose with, with many of those aspects of um, different parts of your life interacting with each other. Um, if I go back to my own childhood, um, when I first started taking an interest in football, um, my, the nearest league team to where I grew up is Millwall. Now, uh, anyone who was familiar 
with Millwall at any period in history will know it's not the most friendly environment to set foot into. I'm, I'm a Leeds fan, so I'm just keeping very quiet at this oh, point. Yes. <laughs> so, um, anyway, they, they were awful rough boys down at Millwall. So, uh, instead of going to watch Millwall as a lad, I'd go in the other direction, get the bus in the other direction, uh, and I'd go down to um, Champion Hill and watch Dulwich Hamlet. You played in something called the Isthmian League, which at the time I thought, oh, that's an interesting name for a league. Um, also, when I came to look at all this stuff with Gardner and so on, um, I realised that the ancients had this great sports circuit of which the Olympics was only one part and the Isthmian Games was another part uh, along with, um, with a couple of others. And... Um, that got me to thinking, well, this the Isthmian League coming out of this Victorian amateurism thing, that's obviously part of this Greek influence into sport. So, so maybe if I look at Gardner, I'll find some kind of cause and effect that goes through to the foundation of the Isthmian League and, and various other things. Why did we have a football team called Blackburn Olympic? Why are Blythe Spartans called that? Um, so I thought I was going to go in and find a lot of quite straightforward um, cases of people taking inspiration from the ancient world. It didn't work out quite like that. <laughs> but it's been a really interesting journey. It's, it's actually taken me not so much directly from, from ancient sports history to Victorian sport, but from ancient sports history into Victorian education and then sort of background into sport. Um, well, it's been a really interesting journey. Yeah, and it's actually, it's funny, um, when I started at Texas, one of the courses I had to teach is kind of, you know, like from the ancient world to the modern days. So I immediately went to Gardner to try and get like to snippets and quotes. And I was immediately struck by the depth of the research, but then also the very clear attempt to, you know, use examples from the past to critique the present. So it's quite funny, I'd be going through Gardner's books and almost, you know, like kind of just putting a line through all the modern stuff and trying to get into the ancient stuff. So it was interesting then when I read your article um, in Sport and History, which is really unpacking how and why Victorian authors use the study of Greek culture, but then also Greek sport to like really blatantly critique the present. You know, like it, it's not thinly veiled it's very much they they did x and we are doing x and if we're not careful y will happen um so maybe moving into the article itself which is delving into you know the practice of history writing is delving into victorian education is delving into classical studies in the victorian era like how how and where does this article fit into your research interest and i suppose to do the thing everyone hates. What's the brief praises of the article uh, that's been recently published in Sport and History? Uh, well, um, I, I guess it, it, it covers what I ended up doing is starting from that point of, of looking at Gardner as this great influential figure in, in ancient sports history. And um, again, to give him his due, he was the man for, for ancient Greek sport for best part of 100 years, I guess, um, 70 years. Um, 
he he comes to prominence as a historian in about 1905 and he was the main source certainly in English of information on the ancient Greek games up until the 70s when um, Harold Harris comes along and Harris was very much Gardner's disciple. Um, Harris I think probably would have liked to write his books in the 1930s but again he gets sidetracked into a day job as a an English classics lecturer who can only really come back to sports history in retirement um, and writes writes books which are also quite entertaining to read for the same reason as Harris um, as the same reason as Gardner's because um, you get Harris in the 1960s and 70s saying all this very erudite stuff about ancient sport but breaking off every five minutes to have a diatribe about how dreadful sport is in his own day and in, in, in um, Harris's case he's bashing the American college system and the Soviet state sponsored uh, amateur professional um, athletes um, of, of the Cold War but um, so I, I start talking about Gardner, but then I have to put Gardner himself into context. So Gardner is only part of a chain of writers on ancient sport. So in the article, I, I go back and I talk about Gilbert West, who was the first person really to write about ancient Greek sport in English in any depth. But I have to, of course, tell you where where West gets his information from. That takes us back into um, 16th century Italian and German writers like Mercuriali and, and Faber. Uh, and they're the people who are actually first accessing the ancient sources. And, and, and the things that drive um, interest in ancient sport in the early modern and, and modern periods are initially the accounts of ancient sport, which come from two main sources, really, um, one being Homer and the other one being the, the Odes of Pindar. And um, Homer, obviously, everyone's familiar with the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, and there's a, a, a bit in the Iliad where Patroclus is, is killed and they have funereal games for him. And this, um, there's, there's quite a lengthy passage covering all the different events that the various um, Greek kings and princes indulge in and the prizes they get for the different sports they do. And it's very clear in um, the Homeric version of, of events which we're going back here to the Bronze Ages, 1100 BC. Um, it's a long way back. And in those days, sport clearly was just for the, the very upper crust of the upper crust. And uh, I think as Malcolm Tozer says in one of his books where he's talking about ancient Greek sport, that um, the primary role of ordinary Greek people was to be killed by posh Greek people. It's, it's basically along those lines. Um, in the heroic age, it was all about um, all about the kings and princes, and and that's 
that's what happens that they have these games and everyone gets big prizes and, and the prizes they dish out are expensive gifts um, cauldrons tripods slave women oxen all the things that floated the boat of the average bronze age king um, and then Pindar is different. He's writing when we get into the classical period of Greek, but Pindar is basically uh, a poet for hire. He writes, um, he writes poems about Olympic victors, but he's not doing this. Um, he's, he's not the fifth century BC equivalent of a sports reporter. He's not going down to the Olympics and, and writing uh impassively about what went on in the state race or the the chariot race or whatever he's been paid by the winner to pick them up he's he's there he's, he's definitely there to put a good slant on, on these people and he's part of what was an industry of of turning sports stars into celebrities in the ancient greek world and um i kind of see him alongside um the, um, the 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 sort of sculptures of the period who were also paid to to produce commemorative sculpture of, of Olympic victors. So um, the most famous one being the the Discobolus of Myron. Um, Myron, a famous Greek sculptor who was paid um, five dollar at the time to produce. Uh, commemorative sculptures of Olympic victors and, and um, the Discobolus, which is uh, a famous sculpture he did of, of, of a discus thrower, was um, widely admired in the ancient world. Um, <clears throat> nobody knows what happened to the original, but the Romans and Greeks produced reproductions of it and put it everywhere. Um, and uh, that became the, the image of the ideal human body. Uh, and so these two, these two people in tandem, Myron and, and Pindar, produced this idea of an idealised person in verse and, and stone, which was usually influential in the ancient world, but also was equally influential in our modern world in, in the 18th and 19th century. It was Pindar and Myron's versions of the athletic body that completely transformed the Western idea of what masculinity and the ideal male should be about. Uh, incidentally, a, a copy of the Discobolus um, that was excavated in the 1790s turns up in London, is now in the British Museum. That's brought over by a man called Charles Townley. And, and again, when the Discobolus turns up, it was a complete sensation. Everyone wanted to get that body. Uh, they didn't want to look like the Prince Regent anymore. They wanted <laughs> a six pack, well, uh, pack. Um, but uh, he, um, that was the body everybody wanted. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to people at the time, the restorers had stuck the head on backwards, um, which led to all sorts of problems with people um, trying to work out how to throw the discus based on the statue and uh, trying to get into a position which nobody can actually manage while throwing a discus. Not in the normal sense, anyway. Yeah, not in the normal sense. <laughs> More of that later, perhaps. But um, 
so I've gone off on an awful tangent, but um, in, in going sort of back through the literature and back through the physical culture that comes with it, um, that brings you up through people like Gilbert West, um, through a whole load of early Victorian, mostly Scottish fitness manuals, which tended to also look at that work by Mercury Ali and West to talk about the ideal Greek body. Um, and, and eventually that comes through. Now, Gardner was in a slightly different tradition because he's trying to write academically about ancient sport. And that's a bit of a shorter tradition in that, as I say in the article, this really starts with a man called John Pedlar Mahaffey in 1875. Now, Mahaffey um, was uh, a professor of ancient history at Trinity College Dublin, um, which may be familiar to you, Connor. Uh, it did give me a nostalgic, uh, a nostalgic glance. Is he still um, regarded with um, with? Uh, is, is he still seen as one of Trinity College's great um, figures? Do you think? This is going to show how little I paid attention to Trinity history while I was there. I don't know. I, right. I, I know a library isn't named after him, and that's pretty much my knowledge. <laughs> well, that's that's something, isn't it? They, they must have been pretty proud of him to do that. Um, so Mahaffey, um, Mahaffey is a really interesting character. Um, he came from the Anglo-Irish aristocracy, minor Anglo-Irish aristocracy. He'd have liked to be rather less minor than he was. Um, he was a terrible snob by all accounts. Um, one of his contemporaries said of him that he'd rather have um, a poor dinner with an aristocrat than the best banquet on earth with a working man. So, um, and, and basically he spent a lot of time um, trying to uh, endear himself to the British upper classes. Um, but he, um, he'd had a funny upbringing. He, he like many of the uh, historians of ancient sport, they, one of, one of the, one of the um, things that they often had in common was coming from a clerical background. Um, I think this is partly because um, in the days of classical education in the public schools, um, the way to get ahead was to get a scholarship. Uh, the way to get into public school was to know a bit of Greek and Latin in the first place. This hadn't always been the case. Public schools were started originally um, for the benefit of ordinary people. The idea of Eton when it was set up was that it was supposed to educate 70 deserving poor boys um, because there was a shortfall in the number of people who could read and write and the the civil service, essentially, back in the days of Henry VI, didn't have enough people who could write good Latin to go around, so they needed to get some war boys in. Um, however, over time, as Eton expanded, it needed to become more um, exclusive. So it, public schools generally, after about 1805, um, when there was a, a ruling by uh, an English law lord called Lord, lord Eldon, um, public schools were able to bring in examinations, uh, entry examinations, which meant that you had to 
no Greek and Latin to get in rather than you'd be taken in because you were a local and trained up in this. And that was simply to, uh, to create an artificial barrier to getting into these schools uh, to keep the hoi polloi out. Um, yeah, I'm using Greek there, Connor. Hoi uh, no, I, I did appreciate that. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so um, the, the idea that you would keep people out meant that the only people who could get into public schools were people who could pay for private tuition, hmm. uh, i.e. The, the landed aristocracy, or people who had a father who spoke Greek or Latin and had some time on his hands, i.e. a vicar. So the public schools were full of aristocrats and vicars, and the ones who tended to be better at Greek and Latin were the sons of the vicars, because their dads obviously worked from an early age. And so Mahathi was one such man. Um, his father was an Anglican vicar in Switzerland, and Mahathi had been brought up in Switzerland, Bavaria, hence spoke German very well hence was familiar with all the real academic work on ancient Greek sport that had been done up to this point, which was all done by Germans. Um, but Mahathi, um, despite being homeschooled, um, ends up at Trinity College, becomes professor of ancient, um, ancient history. But despite teaching ancient Greek every day. He's never actually been to Greece. Um, so one day when he was 39, he decided he ought to go there. So um, he sets off for Greece in 1875. Uh, and it just so happened by coincidence that when he arrives in Athens, uh, there is uh, an athletics festival going on, which is part of a series of, of games called the Zappas Olympics, which is uh, an attempt by Evangeline Zappas to, to recreate the ancient Greek sport um, in, in um, Athens. Now, the Greek revival of um, ancient sport was partly because Greece at this time is still a new nation and it's trying to find something from its distant past and, and to build a national identity. Um, anyway, Mahaffey turns up in Athens and is shocked and horrified to find that the Greeks um, don't understand his perfectly accented upper-class British Greek from 3,000 years ago. And um, <clears throat> obviously in true Victorian British style puts this down to the Greeks not speaking Greek properly. And, um, and blunders his way around. Um, it's quite entertaining because at one point he... Um, he goes along expecting to see an equestrian event and it turns out to be gymnastics um, because I suppose he's seen the phrase defaulting horse or something like that. Um, but anyway, he's not at all impressed by the, um, the sport he sees and he comes home, he writes a, a withering review of it for Macmillan's review saying how dreadful it is and how slovenly and unathletic Greeks are compared to fine upstanding Anglo-Saxon people. Um, but it obviously piques his interest enough that he decides to look into ancient Greek sport alongside uh, his main day job is, is after all writing about ancient Greek history. So 
he, he branches out and he starts to write about ancient sport. He writes quite a short article the Macmillan's magazine, but it's quite influential in that it triggers further investigations by other people. And it also pops in some of the concepts which Gardner then picks up and runs with, namely that ancient Greek sport was an aristocratic pursuit which went into decline once the Greek city-state started to have um, class of professional athletes and that because of that decline first Greece and then Rome collapsed as, as this dreadful torrent of professional sport ran through the ancient world corrupting people and um, he also lays down one or two of the other things which become themes of this study of ancient sport i.e that um, the ancient Greeks were superior to other people because they were the only people that did sport. And that's just like the British because we were superior to other people because we did more sport than other people did. And um, there is also an underlying cultural belief at the time, which I should mention, which is that um, the German scholars that I was talking about, Mahaffey reading earlier on, uh, one of these was a a gentleman named Karl Ottfried Muller, who was famous for his study of the Dorians, who were um, uh, the people who invaded Greece at the end of the Greek Dark Ages and um, supposedly kicked off their golden age of civilization. Now, uh, Muller, again, we're into this, uh, this theme of whether he accidentally or willfully, um, consciously or unconsciously interpreted the past to his own ends. But Muller decided that the Dorians uh, were described as tall, um, fair-haired strangers from the north. And so Muller takes this to be that they must come from the same ancestral stock as the Germans. Um, and this is taken very seriously by um, Victorian historians throughout the whole 19th century is the idea that the ancient Greeks were somehow the same stock as the Germans and therefore the Anglo-Saxons. And that this, there was some kind of subliminal link therefore between Germanic uh, people and the ancient Greeks. And therefore that the whole thing of civilization and philosophy and being both better mentally and physically than other types of people was somehow inherently inbuilt uh, almost racially in, into both the British and the ancient Greeks. Um, and this also tied into another set of um, beliefs, if you like, that were going on at the same time, which was um, when Muller was originally writing, of course, we're still in, in the Napoleonic Wars. And one of the things that happens in the Napoleonic Wars is that um, Napoleon, when he declared himself emperor, began to very strongly realign the idea of Frenchness with ancient Rome. And the, 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 the French Empire takes on a lot of the trappings of the Holy Roman Empire 
and thus the Roman Empire. And um, you see in French buildings and the way that Napoleon is, um, is often portrayed in pictures, he's consciously trying to look Roman. Mm. So the British at that point, who up until then have consciously been trying to look Roman as well, um, as you can see by statues of King George in, in the park at Windsor, for example, um, decide that they're not Romans anymore. We reinvent ourselves as Greeks because the British Empire is a mercantile trading empire, just like the Athenians. And the British soldier is big and strong, just like the Spartans. So Britain and Germany become more Greek as a reaction to French Romanness, if you like. And so that also builds into this narrative that Muller has, which then Mahaffey takes, that somehow we are aligned to the ancient Greeks and superior to people like the French and Italians because they're not as athletic. It's laughable when you think about it. <laughs> well, it's just amazing to see the work that's done with this ancient history. Like it's, it's very much... Uh, a vessel you know that you can critique other nations you can critique your own nation you can like it just holds such symbolic importance and i mean the thing that i found so interesting in the article is a showing the homogenous nature of the people who are writing about sport in the um in the classical world and you have a wonderful um just brief kind of background info to all these different people and you know it's clergyman 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 stockbroker clergyman factory manager clergyman you know it's just and similarly with the schools i mean it's a handful of schools really being uh worked in and out so it's just fascinating to see aside from the professional similarities and you make the point that you know you tended not to disagree with the person who'd written the book before you you know you tend to um build on rather than critique others that they also are all coming from pretty much the same socioeconomic background and then in that broader climate of what does greek or Ro roman culture mean within victorian england so that there's just so much going on within a fascination and admiration of ancient greece so i'm aware that i've taken uh, quite a bit of your time so i suppose i'll ask a fi final question which is a nice question which is you know what's next now for this research what's the the next step or the next evolution from some of the findings that we find in this article so what pops out of it um is as i has said to you a bit earlier um when i started out i thought that this the the, the stuff that's in this article it, it was going to be the first chapter of a progression towards um, perhaps uh, en ending up with, with uh, Greek sport coming out into more modern sport and, and think certain things popping out, whether it be the Isthmian League or the modern Olympics. Um, it didn't quite work out that way because once, um, once you get into trying to understand why Gardner uh, thought the way he did, you start to look at the way that um, classicism and athleticism interact in the Victorian public school and how that developed. So what ended up happening was I, I then had to look at that development. So I 
have talked about the way in which classicism developed as as more or less the be all and end all of, of Victorian public school education. Um, I think um, literally it took up around about 85 to 95% of classroom time, depending on which public school you're at. Um, and sport took up pretty much everything else. Um, so I, I talk about the way in which um, classicism came to dominate the public school curriculum and why, uh, how athleticism came into the public school, which is a lot to do with um, really controlling the, um, the completely untrammeled debauchery that was going on in public schools before they had sport to, to um, distract them from, uh, from all kinds of things which you wouldn't imagine now. I mean, people, people talk with horror about some of the things that go on in modern schools, but there's nothing to do early 19th century public schools. Um, the, the, the tales of um, drug abuse, murder, rape, sodomy, all sorts, it's, it's terrible. Um, and full-scale rebellions, um, for example, at, uh, at places like rugby, it wasn't unknown for the, um, for the militia to have to be called out to put down rebellions by heavily armed schoolboys. Um, so gun battles have been known to, to um, erupt at, at public schools. So anyway, um, sport comes along um, and then I get into where the, where the classics and athleticism interact because what's important turns out to be not so much what Gardner said, because it didn't necessarily influence too many people that directly, but what leading sportsmen and administrators of sport thought at the time. And in the same way that Gardner and all those other people came from that very limited single background, so did the people at the top of most of our organised sport in the second half of the 19th century. So what I look at is the networks that developed at public schools in general and Eton in particular. And what I've come up with is this, um, this network of people um, and the tentacles that spread out into the various sports and educational establishments to influence the development of sport between about 1860 and the First World War. And this turns out, in my opinion, um, to very much center on Edmund Waugh, who was the headmaster of Eton from 1884, but had been a master at Eton from about 1860. And Waugh had gone to Eton himself as a boy, uh, then gone on to Balliol College, Oxford, and then back to Eton as a housemaster. But he rode several times for Oxford in the boat race and was generally reckoned to be England's greatest oarsman um, in the 1850s. And then thereafter, 
England's greatest rowing coach and certainly most influential um, rowing coach. Uh, and he was the big figure in both Etonian and Oxford and the Henley Regatta. Um, <clears throat> but he was also a historian of ancient Greek rowing. And he did things like build scale replicas of triremes for the schoolboys to try out and things like that. Um, but war, his connections are, are really what I go on to talk about later in the project. Um, the people that passed through his hands as pupils who later became um, influential figures, either as sportsmen themselves or as politicians or as administrators. And also um, his connections to those historians of ancient sport because people like Percy Gardner and, and Norman Gardner um, asked War's advice on ancient Greek sport, particularly rowing. And the fact that people like Robert Carr Bosenket, who was one of War's star pupils, went on to become director of the British School at Athens and a British representative on the International Olympic Committee, and the impact that those people had directly into sport. And it turns out, in a way, that um, one of the reasons the modern Olympics becomes as Greek as it does is not so much because they're the Olympics, because when Pierre de Coubertin decides to revive the games, the Olympics is almost just a convenient handle to stick on that. He's, he's used that word Olympics because he's seen uh, Brooks Penny's got something called the Olympian Games in Shropshire that he's picked as an inspiration. He knows that Zappos has had an Olympic Games in Athens and Olympics is just a handy title for a, a kind of big sports festival. But what Kubertown wants to do is really have a kind of international varsity games. He's really, really impressed with what goes on between Oxford and Cambridge and at the public schools in England. Um, and he's interested in the same thing he's seen in the Ivy League colleges in America. And he, Kubertan, is massively scarred by the Franco-Prussian War as a child. And he's seen these big martial Prussians walk all over the French. And he thinks, well, if only our boys had learned to do more sport in school, we'd be able to stand up to the Germans. And so he wants to develop that Again, we come back to that awful phrase in Anglo-Saxon, the Anglo-Saxon sport that is seen in Britain and America. He wants to encourage that. So he wants the Olympics to be in the image of British and American university sports. But in order to get British and American buy-in to that, he has to accept that they are completely obsessed with their idea of Greek amateurism. And so the whole amateur thing and some of the things like the Olympic Ode being in ancient Greek comes out of that British input to it. So the, the Olympic Ode is written by George Stuart Robertson. Um, doesn't sound like a Greek chap at all, does he? <laughs> <laughs> Stuart Robertson's quite interesting because um, he was a hammer thrower for Oxford. He goes along to the first Olympics because he's a classicist and he thinks the Olympics sounds like a cool idea. 
And when he turned up in Athens, he found they hadn't got a hammer throw. So he entered the discus because that was the nearest thing to the hammer. And he came fourth, which is Britain's best ever result. But he also threw the worst ever recorded distance in an Olympic discus event. Well, you can, and, you can only um, compete against who's in the field. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, he, um, he also got the bronze medal for tennis, even though he, he got a bye in the semi-final and his only match was the final. <laughs> it's incredible. So it's really this just deepening influence and diffusion and spread of that British ideal and the ramifications of that within Britain and then also within that global stage. Yes, I think so. Uh, I think it's initially, uh, there's there's a lot of that British input goes into this whole amateurism debate and yeah. some of the, the, the idea that people are somehow descended from this noble ancient thing of only the game mattering. Uh, and that gets taken in and, and um, that of course is a complete chimera because um, the, one of the things we should mention of course is in, in their misinterpretation of ancient sport, the Victorians had, had missed the point that Greek sport was entirely about the individual. Um, ancient Greece was very individualistic and that uh, cheating was quite rampant at the ancient Olympics um, and that winning was the only thing that mattered and if you didn't come first you were a, you really were a loser and there was no such thing as a good loser in Greece um, it was a terrible thing not to win um, and they took it very badly when they lost and they didn't really have team sport whereas the 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 public school ethos was all about team sport and not being individualistic too much. So there was that aspect as well, the whole yeah. good loser thing and, and good show and, and shaking hands was very un-Greek really. But, uh, and I think that's something that, again, to you know, return to the article one final time, is so interesting is it's the idea of ancient Greece rather than necessarily sometimes what happened in ancient Greece or ignoring certain things that happened in ancient Greece, the power that that held within Victorian society was just, as, as you show, really tangible and you know, in, influential in so many different ways. So on that note, Andy, I'm just going to remind uh, the listeners again, of your wonderful article in Sport and History, it's called At Home at Oxbridge, British Views of Ancient Greek Sports, 1749. 1974 and i want to thank you again for being on the sport and history podcast and we look forward to many more articles in sport and history and the successful completion of your phd so thank you so much uh, it's really appreciated thank you thanks